Hello, and welcome to the Oxford Policy Pod. My name is Alec Graven, and I am a current Master of Public Policy candidate at the University of Oxford. In light of recent global developments, the Oxford Policy Pod is pleased to bring you a special episode focused on the current military crisis in Ukraine. We are lucky to be joined by a world-famous war historian who help us break down some of the most important elements of the current conflict and strategies we can think about for approaching peace. Before we begin, I wanted to briefly review what has happened so far. Russia and Ukraine are neighboring countries, where Ukraine was formerly part of the Soviet Union. After the fall of the Soviet Union, Ukraine became its own country, but tensions with Russia remained. One long-standing issue was whether Ukraine would join NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. NATO is a military alliance between several North American and European nations, including the United States, focused on promoting peace and mutual security. NATO has a defense clause that says that an attack on one member of the alliance is an attack on all. Some have expressed a worry about Ukraine joining NATO because it could turn a conflict in Ukraine into the next world war, given its proximity to and larger border with Russia. Others argue that Ukraine joining NATO is essential to protect Ukraine against Russian aggression. Russia under President Vladimir Putin has expressed a desire to increase Russian influence over Ukrainian territories. And in 2014, Russia invaded the territory of Crimea in Ukraine and annexed it. This year, Russia began a massive troop buildup on the Ukrainian border, and several devastating cyber attacks hit Ukrainian government infrastructure. On February 21st, Russia declared that two regions of Ukraine were autonomous states and sent troops into Ukraine. On February 24th, the Russian army engaged in a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, where the capital of Kiev was soon attacked. Many Western countries have sent in aid and military equipment to Ukraine and have imposed sanctions on Russia's economy. On February 28th, Russia's central bank more than doubled its interest rate and closed the Moscow Stock Exchange to limit the damage to its economy. As of our recording on March 8th, 2022, Kiev has been able to hold off Russian attacks and peace talks between the forces have occurred, but broke down reportedly over Russians' attacks on civilian targets. Our goal today is to get a broader perspective on this topic and look at history and how it can inform how we think about the current conflict and how we can build a just and lasting peace. To help us in this task, we are lucky to be joined by a preeminent war historian, Margaret Macmillan, who is an Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Toronto and an Emeritus Professor of International History at the University of Oxford. Her research specializes in British imperial history and international history of the 19th and 20th centuries. Her publications have been translated into 26 languages, and her latest book is War, How Conflict Shaped Us. Hi, Margaret. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, Alex, it's a pleasure. So as you know, after the Soviet Union fell about 30 years ago, it seemed as though the Cold War had ended. However, now with Russia's dramatic escalation in Ukraine, many people have expressed a worry that we are entering a new Cold War. So do you think we're entering a new Cold War? Well, at the moment, we're in a hot war, um, and I don't know how that's going to play out and how it's going to end. So um, we see a confrontation that we never actually saw between the United States and, and Russia in the Cold War. I suspect very much that we are going to have a long period of armed tension between the United States and Russia. Clearly, both countries have very different interests, very different goals, but what also is adding to the complexity of the situation where it will not be so much, I think, like the Cold War, is that other powers will have a role as well. And clearly the European Union is taking a very strong position on what's going on in Ukraine. And China is going to have a very strong interest in what happens there. 
And so looking at the interests of the different parties, what do you believe Putin's ultimate ends are? And how does invading Ukraine, in his perspective, help him achieve these ends? I think Putin's aims have always been actually very clear, or at least for the past 20 years or so. He said repeatedly that he doesn't want NATO on his doorstep. He believes that the expansion eastwards of NATO, when it took in countries such as Poland, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia, was illegitimate. He saw the collapse of the Soviet Union, as he said, a geopolitical disaster. He believes that Ukraine belongs in the Russian sphere, and again, he's made this very clear. He's, he's written, he's spoken about how Ukraine is part of Russia, has always been part of Russia, how the Ukrainians and the Russians are one people united in, in one spiritual world and religious world. And so I think he's been very clear about this. I think what surprised people is that he was actually prepared to use force to bring Ukraine back into what he sees as its rightful position within the Russian sphere and presumably as part of Russia. But I don't think we should have been surprised because he's used force to do this before. Um, he used force to subdue Chechnya. He used force against Georgia when it looked like it might be joining NATO. And he used force, of course, to occupy Crimea and to take those two, what he calls independent republics in the Donbass. And so I think it's always been clear what he's thought. And I think we have to understand his thinking. He's thinking not just of the recent past and of the end of the Cold War. I certainly, he certainly is thinking of that, but he also thinks of a, of a much longer past. I mean, he thinks of Russian history and he thinks in terms of the Russia, say, of Peter the Great. And this is something, I think, which really is very important in, in understanding him. And he also sees Ukraine and Kiev in particular as the birthplace of Russia. Um, it was the, the home to Kievan Rus, a sort of loose conglomerate of, of different kingdoms. And eventually it helped to produce the Russia that eventually grew into the Russia of today. And so I think his motives are very clear indeed. And I think he assumed that the West was divided, we could what would not do anything. He also assumed that going into Ukraine would, would be a piece of cake. Um, very interesting reports are now coming out of the Russian army, the officers in the Russian army, packing their dress uniforms for what they thought would be the triumphal parades through Ukrainian cities as the Ukrainians welcomed them with flowers and cheers. Looking at the conflict in Ukraine, do you think that Putin's position is going for the whole of Ukraine, or do you think that he is going only to grab certain sections of Ukraine? So the question is, does Putin want parts of Ukraine to send in part a message to the West, or does he want all of Ukraine? I think that's something that's still not clear. Um, I think he'll settle for what he can get. And of course, the longer the war goes on, that may become less than he had hoped for. I think he probably wants um, those two so-called independent republics in the Donbass, and he wants them not just in their present shape, but he wants the territory that was part of them before they, they seceded um, from, from Ukraine. He may well want most of Ukraine east of the Dnieper River. He probably wants a land bridge from Crimea along to the Donbass. But what he would want in the rest of Ukraine, I think, is, is still not perhaps entirely clear. Certainly, at the very least, he would want a compliant government. He'd want the sort of government that he has in Belarus, which depends on him heavily, which does what he wants, and which looks eastwards rather than looking westwards. But how this will all play out, of course, is now going to depend on, on what happens in the war. And if Putin's war is successful, if he is able to take over all of Ukraine, do you think he would go further into other countries such as Georgia? Do you think he will move on to those countries as well? 
or do you think he's going to limit himself to just Ukraine? Well, Alex, that, of course, is, is one of the big questions, and I think we just don't know. I myself don't think that Georgia is as important to him as Ukraine. I mean, Georgia was only recently, in, in terms of history, brought in to Russia and came in in the, in the 19th century. And so I'm not sure that he sees Georgia in quite the same way that he sees Ukraine. And Ukraine, of course, is much bigger and much richer. He may well want to take in the Baltic states. Um, again, I don't think he sees them as being part of, of Russia, the eternal Russia, in the same way that he sees Ukraine. He probably would like Moldova, Moldova because he would, I think, argue that that properly belongs in the Russian sphere, within the Russian family. The other one I think it will be interesting is not because it's Russian so much as because of its size and, and again, its potential and, and its wealth, and that's Kazakhstan. And he may well want to try and bring Kazakhstan under his control. But I think the war in Ukraine has weakened his capacity to project his power. I mean, the, the very manifest weaknesses of the, so oh, sorry, I keep on saying Soviet, but I mean Russian, the very manifest weaknesses of the Russian forces, the fact that the war has now gone on for 11 days when they thought it would be over more or less in 24 hours, I think is making people less frightened of Russian power and, and is making it more difficult for Putin to project his power. In World War I, when Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, this proved to be a focal point for producing a much larger conflict in Europe. How likely do you think that this conflict will spread into a much wider conflict? Do you think that, as some have said, this will be the starting point of World War III? Or do you think the conflict will be contained just within Ukraine? Well, that, of course, is, is the big question, um, or one of the big questions that, that a lot of people are worrying about. I mean, the thing about wars is, as we're noticing now, they are unpredictable. And they have their own momentum, and they, they, they follow their own path. And, and it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen or, or who's going to win. And again, the longer it goes on, the harder it will be for Russia, I think, to impose its will and its control over Ukraine. And when you get interests involved, as there are interests involved in Ukraine, and when you get countries bordering on Ukraine who have a very strong concern about what's going on and, and want to see an independent Ukraine, then the possibility of clashes, accidents is always there. And I think at the moment, the West is being very cautious. They're supplying military equipment to Ukraine. They're not imposing a no-fly zone. I think they're very concerned that there might be some sort of incident which would set off a wider war. And of course, we always have to remember that both sides, not, not, not Ukraine itself, but NATO forces and Russia have nuclear weapons. And so the danger is a very real one, I think, of the war spreading and developing and escalating. From a historical perspective, World War I and World War II expanded into much larger conflicts. If this current conflict in Ukraine were to be contained to just Ukraine, why would you guess that would happen? Would it be just a nuclear weapon calculus at play, or would it be something else that would stop it from having a similar outcome to World War I and World War II? I think what would help the war from spreading outside the borders of Ukraine would be, first of all, the unwillingness, I think, um, of NATO to see it spread. I think, I think you know, the, the steps NATO has taken so far have been very much about containing it. And I think from Putin's point of view, the danger for him is the longer the war goes on, the weaker his forces get. I mean, they've already been very badly damaged by what's going on in Ukraine. And the more likely it is that he's going to get trouble back in Russia. I mean, at the moment, he has clamped down very hard indeed on the media, and the Russians are only getting one view of what's going on. But people are hearing about their sons who have died or been captured in Ukraine. 
they didn't know they were going there, uh, neither the soldiers nor the families. And I, that, I think, will worry Putin because he will remember what happened to the Soviet Union in the 1980s when it invaded Afghanistan, again, thinking this would be easy and it would be able to impose its will on the country without much fuss and, and much loss. And in fact, of course, what began to happen is, is the soldiers, the Soviet soldiers in Afghanistan started getting killed and the, the bodies started coming back and the parents, the mothers in particular, started protesting in the streets. And it was one of the things that helped to weaken an already weakened Soviet system and helped to bring it down. And I think Putin must be very conscious of that. And it has been possible. We know that you can contain wars um, at terrible cost, of course, to those who are actually fighting in them or the civilians who are caught up in them. But the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s was effectively contained. Both sides, the Soviet Union and its allies, and the United States and its allies supplied weapons to the forces fighting, but they didn't themselves get involved. And that war did eventually come to an end, doing, as I say, terrible damage in the region, but it didn't spread. It seems that you were right that Russia was intending a quick strike to take out Ukraine's leadership and then move on to a victory parade. But now that this has not happened, do you have any guesses for how Putin is going to adapt his military strategy to avoid similar failings that Russia had in places like Afghanistan? And how is he going to adapt his strategy so that there isn't this loss in Russia's military standing? I'm afraid what he's probably going to do is what he's already started doing, and that is terrorizing the civilians in the cities by shelling, bombing, um, keeping food and, and, and water from, from getting to them, and hoping that that will force the Ukrainians to, to surrender or, or to come to some sort of terms. At the moment, it doesn't seem to be working. But of course, there's only so much that civilians can endure and that cities can endure especially when things like water get cut off and when food supplies begin to get cut off. Um, you know, we're hearing reports of the sufferings of civilians and what they're going through. And at a certain point, I think it will be very difficult for the Ukrainians to go on fighting. But even if the cities are occupied, I think the Russians are going to have a very difficult time because they'll be dealing both with ruined infrastructure, which, of course, they're not prepared to fix. And I don't think they, they probably have the capacity to, to deal with on any large scale. But they'll also be dealing with a sullen, resentful and very hostile population. And I think fighting is likely to go on, even if some of the big cities, including Kiev, fall. Fighting is likely to go on throughout Ukraine against the Russian forces. And you know, to hold down a country the size of Ukraine with some 44 million people takes a lot of force and takes a lot of, of, of numbers and whether the Russians have the capacity to do this is, is really a big question. I think what they will probably try to do is simply terrorize the population. I mean, there's already been talk of how they're planning demonstrative crackdowns, they're planning public executions. Um, that will hold on to Ukraine or hold on to parts of Ukraine, perhaps, but it's not going to make it possible for Russia to stay there. I think in the long run, it's going to become extremely costly for them. So now, turning to the question of how the world responds and the question of sanctions, many countries have put sanctions on Russian banks in other areas to limit the Russian economy. Would you mind taking us through the role you think these sanctions play and how effective you think they are in this world where countries are afraid of a direct military conflict but are willing to engage in economic leverage against Russia? Well, the Russian economy was already shaky um, before the war started. I mean, if you look at Russian GDP as a proportion of world GDP, it's been declining over the past 20 years. I mean, Russia has gone from being a major economic power to one that is, is no longer that. And that decline looks like it's going to go on down. And so the Russian economy, I think, is going to really suffer as a result of this. And I think the Russians themselves, 
Putin and his advisors have been surprised at how quickly a lot of the West has, has reacted and how firmly it has imposed sanctions. I mean, it hasn't just gone after one or two oligarchs. It's actually seriously going after things like the Russian banking system. And I think that is going to really cost Russia. It's also going to cost those imposing the sanctions. I mean, the sanctions have a real cost. And one of the areas where we're going to be, I think, deeply affected in, in the rest of the world is in fuel because Russian oil and Russian gas have been very important. They've been important in Europe and they've been important in other parts of the world. And if those get cut off, the price of, of, of carbon fuels is going to go up sharply. It's going to affect the economy. I think governments are going to have to take very serious messages, measures to prop up their economies. And this comes at a time when they've already been taking such measures and, and, and running, up debt, running up debt in propping up the economies during COVID. And so there is a price to be paid for this. My own view is that this is an essential price because if Russia gets away with this, it will not only encourage Russia to do similar things elsewhere, but it will encourage other tyrants to do exactly the same sorts of things. Um, if you can get away with seizing territory unprovoked from a country, then others will see the example and others will be tempted to follow it. But it is not going to be easy and it is going to be painful. And I think we're going to have to really think collectively those countries that oppose what Russia is doing. And it's not just, um, I say the West loosely, but it's not just um, the, the Americas and, and Europe. It's also Japan. It's also Australia. It's, it's countries around the world are going to have to work collectively to ensure that the fuel supplies keep coming. Alternative sources are found. And as I say, this is, this is not going to be easy. In terms of targeting the sanctions, how targeted do you think they should be? One of the logics is that you should turn the sanctions towards Putin and his close circle and try to hurt the oligarchs. And the other logic is that you should have broad-based sanctions to hurt the overall economy and motivate the Russian people to rise up and revolt. You can also have a situation where you try both. So how do you think countries should go about the logic of sanctioning to make sure that they are most effective? Well, I think you mentioned it. I think both. Um, you know, Putin and the tight network of oligarchs around him have essentially looted the Russian state and have built up very large fortunes themselves, a lot of which they've parked elsewhere under sort of different names, different companies that are very hard to trace. And I think we're beginning to, to get a grip on that. Um, I think it's taken much too long. Some countries have been more effective than others in doing this. The United States has been better at cracking down on unexplained sources of wealth and, and getting through this shadowy maze of, of, of ownership the British, as you know, have been very slow on it um, and have, have not done all that much. And so I do think, yes, I think that's a step that can be taken. I think every yacht that is seized or every property that is seized um, will perhaps make the oligarchs think again. But of course, they have no choice. Um, they're dependent on Putin as much as he's dependent on them. And they are increasingly finding they have nowhere to go. And so unfortunately, I think the sort of sanctions that hurt the Russian economy as a whole, and they are beginning to really bite into the Russian economy, and which will hurt the Russian people, are going to be important. Um, I think it's got to be something that makes it difficult for Russia to carry on its war-making capacity and to carry on its aggressive foreign policy. And so speaking specifically about Putin, how do you think Putin has been able to hold on to power for so long? And what do you think the cur greatest current threat to his power is? I think he's been able to hold on to power for so long because a lot of people in positions of power around him depend on him. The heads of the intelligence services, the heads of the military, the heads of key sectors of the economy, all these people are there because Putin put them there. And so they depend on him. Of course, conversely, he depends on them. I mean, it is this, this very tight 
linking network. Um, how strong that network is remains to be seen. I mean, at a certain point, some of them may begin to think this is not worth it and we want to save you know, something of what we have parked abroad and we don't want to end up um, you know, impoverished in Russia. But how do they get rid of him? Um, he is very well guarded, very well surrounded. Um, and so this is, this is really a question. Um, if the Russian people begin demonstrating and, and, and begin showing their displeasure, and, and they have been doing this, it may weaken his position. But he has managed to put himself into a very strong position, as I say, because of this interlocking of the key controllers of Russian society and the Russian economy with himself. And I think they can't go anywhere. Um, they, they, they have a problem, I think. They all do. And so it remain to be seen. I mean, there is some hope, I suppose, of, of some sort of shift of power, some sort of palace coup. But these things are very difficult to organize. I mean, you know, all the way through the Second World War, there was talk that some of the German military were going to get rid of Hitler. And they never did. I mean, they tried in, in the general's plot of July 1944, and, and that was the closest they came. But, you know, all those very powerful generals couldn't get rid of the man they felt was leading Germany to destruction. Um, they made one attempt and it, and it didn't work. If Putin offers the following deal to the West, where he says, I will stop the bloodshed in Kiev on the condition that Ukraine cedes regions like the Donbass and Crimea, with the further condition that Ukraine never becomes a part of NATO, do you think that is a deal that the West and Ukraine should be willing to accept to stop the war? That's very difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, I think it's very important to stop the bloodshed and very important that no more Ukrainian lives are lost. But if that is the deal on offer, where does that leave Ukraine and where does it leave the West? And, and you know, it, I, I don't have a clear answer, Alex, because it is rewarding banditry. It is rewarding an unpro unprovoked aggression. Um, it will not leave a strong Ukraine. It will leave a Ukraine which will be pressured constantly by Russia, um, which will try and interfere as it already has done Ukrainian politics. So it's a terrible dilemma. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a balance here between stopping the war and stopping the terrible loss of, of human life and the suffering that is going on and leaving a situation which is dangerous, unstable, and probably not going to do much for Ukraine. So it is, I, I, I don't have a clear answer to it. It's a very important moral choice. And I think in the end, it's got to be the Ukrainian people who decide. It's their country that's been invaded. They have, I, I believe, the right of self-determination. And it's got to be acceptable. Whatever deal is made has got to be acceptable to the Ukrainian people and to their leaders. What should NATO's strategic approach to other countries be? I'm speaking specifically of other countries like Georgia, which have expressed a desire to join NATO. But Georgia joining NATO is a more aggressive action and may confirm Putin's worry about being encircled. So should NATO be focused on trying to admit more countries to protect them by virtue of its membership? Or should NATO be pursuing some other strategy to combat Russian aggression? I do not think NATO should, should accept Georgia as a member. And I think it's basically off the table. Um, you know, NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and it was set up to provide mutual security for Canada, the United States, and the democratic countries of Western Europe and other countries as they became democratic. And that is, I think, an important, you have to be a democratic country to be part of NATO as they become part of NATO, um, have, have, the other countries have joined. But I think Georgia is not part of Western Europe geographically. I think it would be seen as a provocation. And actually, I don't think it would help Georgia 
because what it would do is is increase the enmity of Russia. And it's not clear to me how NATO would actually be able to defend Georgia. And as I say, I think that is pretty much off the table and has been off the table since about 2008. And so I don't think there's any prospect of Georgia joining NATO. And, and in fact, I think the West was was not doing much about the admission of, of Ukraine into NATO. I mean, that was something that um, the members of, of the Western Alliance were quite happy to simply leaves at some undefined time in the future and not do anything about. The problem is now, should they make the promise at the point of what is quite literally a gun? And I think that is the difficulty. Um, I think NATO membership for Ukraine was was not going to happen. Um, the trouble now is Putin has made it a sort of red line. Let's turn now to China, because China plays such an important role on the world stage. China recently abstained from a recent Security Council resolution condemning Russia. And some have thought that China would be an arbiter between the West and Russia in the current conflict. Others think China will be using this moment to move more aggressively on Taiwan. So what do you think China's role in this conflict is? Do you think it is on a specific side or is it trying not to take sides? And what do you think its overall strategy is? I think China's strategy is to sit and watch. Um, I suspect, although we can't know, that when Putin went to Beijing, before the opening of the Olympics, he had a long conversation with Xi Jinping, and I suspect he let him know what his plans were. I mean, those plans by that point weren't much of a secret anyway. And I think the Chinese probably made it clear, the Chinese leadership made it clear that they were not going to do much. But I suspect the Chinese have been surprised at how long it is taking. I think they probably accepted Putin's assurances that Ukrainians would mostly welcome the Russians when they came in and that it would all be over in, in a couple of days. And I don't think that this is, is doing China much good. I think the Chinese are now concerned that this is going on, that it will increase the determination in Taiwan to beef up its own defenses. Um, you know, the Ta- Taiwanese who fear a Chinese forcible Um, the forcible reunification with China and fear of Chinese invasion have been watching what's going on in in Ukraine very closely. And I think for the people in Taiwan, this is an example of just how important it is to have good defenses. And so from the Chinese point of view, what may well be happening is that it's having a repercussion, the war in Ukraine is having a repercussion on their own neighborhood in a way that they don't particularly want. I mean, they don't want a Taiwan that is beefing up its defenses even more than it already has. And although the Chinese leadership, Xi Jinping, is saying our friendship with with Russia is absolutely tight, um, you know, we we stand by them, I think the Chinese would prefer, and again, this is speculation because we can't know the inner workings there, but I think they would prefer some sort of peaceful solution. From their point of view, of course, one of the beneficial outcomes of this is that Russia will be even more dependent on them because Russia has lost friends elsewhere. And this is something, I think, where Putin has made a big miscalculation, I think, at least from the point of view of Russian long-term interests. And that is by throwing Russia into such a close alliance with China, which is a much bigger power, much bigger economically, much bigger demographically, he is making Russia very much the junior partner in a relationship where the Chinese will push their own interests. And I think, you know, already the Russian Far East is something the Chinese are deeply interested in because of its resources. But also the Russians, I think, are aware that there are far fewer Russians out in the Far East along that common border than there are Chinese. And so I think Russia has strategically made a big mistake by throwing itself into such a close relationship with China. 
which will now have a much more dominant role in that relationship because of Russia's growing weakness. The friendship between Russia and China is interesting because these countries have historically been adversaries and share some common borders. Why do you think this friendship came about and why did Putin and Xi Jinping come together in this current moment? I think they came together because they had a common uh, enemy is too strong a word, but a common opponent in the United States. They came together because they both believe that the West is decadent, divided, doesn't know what it's doing. They came together because they felt that they could set their own rules in the world. Um, I think they saw a different sort of world in, in which their countries would play a very important part. But you mentioned the common border. And of course, that common border is disputed. A lot of the territory that is Russian on the map was seized by Russia in the course of the 19th century. And the Chinese were forced to sign a treaty, I believe, in 1860, in which they accepted that parts of their territory had now become parts of Russia. And the Chinese haven't forgotten that. And so I think we can expect to see in the future um, Chinese pushing, China pushing Russia to cede some of that territory, which the Chinese feel is rightfully theirs. What do you think about this conflict will shift China away from Russia? Is it just a prolonged bloodshed in Kiev will move them away? Or are certain calculations at play that will move them more strongly to align against Russia? I don't think Russia is going to shift away from China or vice versa. Um, I think for the time being, they need each other. What I'm saying is that it probably isn't going to be an easy relationship in the future. Um, from the Russian point of view, they're going to find themselves very much under the um, under, um, under the thumb is maybe too strong, but very much under the influence of, of a much stronger and bigger power. And from the Chinese point of view, they're going to find themselves with a country, at least under Putin, that's unpredictable. And I don't think the Chinese will like that. I would like to turn now to the broader historical perspective on ending the conflict. And famously, the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I was very, very harsh and very punitive towards Germany. And many said that the treaty helped fuel later German aggression. And so if the war ends between Russia and Ukraine, and the West is able to impose very debilitating sanctions, how do you think the West should strike this balance between holding Russia accountable and punishing them, but also not wanting to repeat the Treaty of Versailles? Do you have any insights on what lessons history can share with us here? Uh, well, Alex, I think I'd probably disagree with you on the Treaty of Versailles. It's, it's much debated. But um, the difference, I think, between any ending that comes to the war in Ukraine, which will be a negotiated ending, was that in 1918, at the end of the First World War, Germany lost. And it lost very decisively. There's no question at the time that it had lost. And there is, of course, a debate that goes on to the present about whether the treaty that the Allies then signed with Germany in 1919 at Versailles was too harsh. And I would argue that, in fact, it wasn't as harsh as the Germans made out. The Germans came to think they hadn't lost the war. They came to think they hadn't started the war. And so I think they would have felt that any treaty was illegitimate in which they lost something. And the Treaty of Versailles was, if you look at it, not nearly as harsh as the treaty which Germany imposed at the beginning of 1918 on Russia in the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. And so to blame what happened in the Treaty of Versailles, to say that it was so harsh that Germany had no choice but to make war in 1939, I think... I wouldn't agree with. Um, and if you look at it, Germany was much more harshly treated at the end of the Second World War. And we've had none of the sort of complaints about that that were, were there in Germany in the interwar years. So I think let's look at what might happen 
if some sort of agreement is reached in Ukraine. It will be, I think, a different sort of ending. Um, it's unlikely to end with a complete defeat of either side, um, although it may be. We don't know yet that, that Ukraine will have to capitulate. But I suspect, um, from what we read, is that Ukrainians are already planning a government ex in exile and already planning to fight on. And so this is not going to be like the ending of the First World War, or indeed the ending of the Second World War, in which one side simply admitted defeat and was prepared to accept whatever terms were imposed on it. I think we're more likely to see, but again, it's hard to predict, some sort of negotiated settlement between Russia and Ukraine um, with pressure from the West and possibly with pressure from China. But that will depend very much on what happens in the next few days of fighting. And again, it's going to depend very much on, on what President Putin is prepared to do he may see any form of negotiated settlement which leaves a partially independent Ukraine or, or whatever as a defeat. Um, you know, his, his whole pride is now tied up in this and his armies, his armed forces have, have not really shown themselves to be very glorious. And I think this must be a humiliation. I'm sure it's a humiliation for him. And so I think it's going to be a very different sort of end of the war um, than occurred in either the First or Second World Wars, which ended with a very decisive defeat of those who, who, who were on the enemy side. Do you think there are any important lessons for policymakers for bringing about peace in the aftermath of war that history shows us? What are policymakers able to do well to bring about peace? I think when you're making, when you're making peace, you, sh you should think about what is going to be necessary to have it last and what is going to be necessary to bring the enemy, if possible, into a different sort of relationship. And I think the most successful endings of wars have been those that have tried to set up a system in which all the, those involved will cooperate to create stability and order. I mean, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars at the Congress of Vienna, the great powers were committed to a stable system and they very consciously were prepared to work with each other after peace was made. And I think importantly, they involve France, which was the defeated nation in the negotiations. And so France, which of course was, I could argue, and it was a new form of state, it had got rid of Napoleon and it had restored the Bourbons. It was not the France that had fought the Napoleonic Wars in, in a certain sense. France had a, a, a real stake in maintaining the peace. And I think it also helped that Europeans and their leaders were exhausted by the wars that had gone on um, really since 1792, and they were ready for peace. And so I think it does show that you can make peace with the defeated, and extending a helping hand to the defeated can often be a basis for, for lasting peace. Um, after the Second World War, um, the United States was initially prepared to pull out of Europe, but because of fear of the Soviet threat, it remained, it set up the Marshall Plan, which provided aid and support to the struggling European economies. And it helped, I think, to make the prosperous and peaceful until this point Europe of today. It's hard to be generous to the defeated enemy, particularly if the war has been very bitter and been marked by savagery on both sides. But it does seem to be a better way of, of making peace, a more lasting peace, if you can bring yourselves to be generous and, and to involve the enemy. But you have to make sure that the enemy is prepared to, to change. And I think in the case of Germany, um, it was, as we can see, over the years going to change significantly, as was Japan. And so as we close this interview, is there anything else you'd like to share with us 
uh, about the Russia-Ukraine conflict or more general lessons you learned studying war and peace? I think I'd just say that history is important. Um, it won't give us, of course, clue, clear blueprints for the future, but what it will do is help us to think about the future and, and perhaps help us to avoid some mistakes. And so if we look at the ways in which the Napoleonic Wars ended, we can see that actually they did bring peace for quite a long time and stability for quite a long time. And we can ask ourselves, why is it that the peace after the Second World War was more lasting than the peace after the First World War? But what I think history can also do is help us to understand the feelings, thoughts, and motivations of those who are actors in the international system. And I think we could have done a lot more to understand Putin's views of Russia, Russian history, Ukrainian history, because they are very important in shaping his decisions and in helping to create the war of today. And so I think history needs to be taken very seriously. It's not just something that is, you know, something you look at for pleasure. It's not just something that happened then and we're living in a very different world. History runs through our world, what people remember, how they see themselves. That's part of history. And I think we really need to be aware of that. Thank you again so much for taking the time to interview with us today. We really appreciated hearing all that you had to say on this topic and all the insights you brought to the table. Thank you very much, Alex. It was a pleasure to talk to you and and always a pleasure to do something at Blavatnik, even virtually. Thank you again. That is all for this week's special episode, and thank you for listening in. We hope that you were able to gain some fresh perspectives for thinking about the current military crisis in Ukraine. This podcast was created by students at the University of Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government. Special thanks to our guest, Margaret McMillan. This episode was hosted by Alec Graven, with support from Logan Williams and Harry Kirk. Our executive producers are Reed Leesk and Livy Biha. Stay tuned for our regular Season 4 episodes, coming out soon.